Sometimes in your search for happiness, you ponder the meaning of your life. And what is the truth? You sift your memory for beginnings. The truth. You send your mind ahead for directions. Truth. But all you really know is now, and you are lost in the present. And what is the truth? Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Kind of anxious to get to it, are you? Whatever. Welcome back to Know Thyself History, a podcast where we try to figure out who we are by looking at where we've been and what we've done. I'm the host, Noel Armstrong, trying to resurrect sense and meaning from the dust of a billion factoids. If you look through the episode list, you'll find that episode two is missing. And that's one of my favorite topics. That's the cannibal colonists of Jamestown. I love the story, but there were problems with the recording that I just can't fix. So instead, I'm going to re-record it and re-release it because I want it to be in the canon. (laughs) Sounds presumptuous. I want it to be in the canon of the Know Thyself History podcast. And so here it is, the cannibal colonists of Jamestown. If you've seen the movie Pocahontas, you know a little bit about Jamestown already. Some of the names there are accurate, John Smith, John Ratcliffe. It's accurate in the fact that they were obsessed with searching for gold. But there's a lot about the story I'm about to tell you that wouldn't be your standard Disney fare. Famine, disease, starvation, death, cannibalism. You wouldn't even have had the energy to sing. You barely have enough energy to stand up or to breathe. And that's especially true during the starving time. Pretty phlegmatic description of the winter of 1609 to 1610 in the Jamestown colony. But I want to go back to when the colony began. In April of 1606, King James I of England, King James VI of Scotland, the same person, he of the ambiguous sexuality, the person who was obsessed with burning witches. So obsessed that he wrote this nutty book about demonology. But anyway, King James I grants a charter to what's called the Virginia Company. The Virginia Company is a private venture, and it has the same goal as pretty much every private venture at the time, which was to make money. They wanted to do that by gathering investors and starting a colony in the New World. Why is it called the Virginia Company? Because Virginia is the region named after the Virgin Queen Elizabeth, the English name for the entire east coast of North America. And with the charter that King James granted them, The Virginia Company could have settled anywhere from North Carolina to New York State. And they had big plans about how they wanted to make money, pay off their investors and get rich themselves. The first way is just to find silver and gold. The New World was supposedly full of these. They were going to go get it. The other way that they wanted to get rich was by finding a water route to the Orient. I mean, imagine how much money they could make on trade if they could just find a water route from the Atlantic to the Pacific across North America. They had no idea how big it was, but if they could find a water route to the Orient, then they would have a shortcut that would allow them to make a killing on trade. So those were the goals of the Virginia Company. 104 men and boys left the New World on three ships in late December of 1606. You can imagine the excitement. These were people going to an entirely new world. This was a great adventure. What they were doing in their day would be about like signing up to be some of the first colonists on the moon or Mars in our day. 
And you might wonder why they left in the middle of the winter in 1606. There's a couple reasons. One is they had to avoid hurricane season. They already knew about the Atlantic hurricane season. They didn't want to get caught in late summer or fall. The other thing is they had to have time to plant and harvest crops before winter or they'd starve to death. They didn't have enough food to carry them through for years and years. They had to plant their crops. So they leave in late December, and in those days it took about four months to sail to the New World. Imagine that. They don't get to the Chesapeake Bay until April of 1607. Now they sail around for a little bit, and by mid-May, they choose the site where Jamestown is going to be established. Now just to give you an idea, this is 13 years before the Mayflower will land. So this is the first permanent English-speaking settlement in the New World. So these are groundbreaking pioneers in every sense of the word. After sailing around like they did, why did they choose Jamestown? There were a few reasons. The most important reasons were its defensibility. It's at the end of a long waterway, so ships can't sneak up on them. It's surrounded on three sides by water, which makes land access difficult. But it was also convenient, because it was deep enough that they could anchor their ships right offshore. So the site seemed ideal, except it was kind of marshy. But as it turned out, of course, the Spanish were the least of their worries. The Spanish really didn't play a role at all in what happened. What they couldn't possibly have known, and what they couldn't have done anything about, even if they had known about it except just leave, was that they were sailing into the worst drought in 800 years. Let me read you a little bit from an article in Science News Daily from 1998, April 28. It says, quote, The worst droughts of the past 800 years. Let me repeat that. The worst droughts of the past 800 years likely played a major role in the starving time endured by colonists at Jamestown. And this is from research from the College of William and Mary and the University of Arkansas. And they did it by studying growth rings in the region. They found that the growth rings on trees during the time period that the colonists would have been at Jamestown were pathetic. The trees just didn't grow during this time because there was no water. And there's no way these poor optimistic adventurers could possibly have known what they were getting into. Now, not everything that happened in Jamestown was the fault of the weather. There was plenty of mismanagement, but this was a factor they couldn't possibly have controlled. Now, as I mentioned earlier, many of the names in the Disney movie Pocahontas are accurate. One of them was John Smith. John Smith's an interesting story. He was actually a mercenary. Somebody was a hired soldier who'd fought in the Netherlands and in Hungary. And there was a little intrigue on the voyage out. It sounds like John Smith tried to take over one of the ships tried to stage a mutiny, and Captain Newport, who was the captain of the vessels, actually imprisoned John Smith for the bulk of the journey over to the New World. And it was bad enough that Captain Newport had every intention of hanging John Smith as soon as they got to the New World. If that had happened, John Smith would be a very small footnote in history. And John Smith got really, really lucky. So there was a sealed chest with documents from the Virginia Company instructing these colonists what to do when they got to the New World. When they got to the New World, they unsealed the documents and read through them. And on these documents was a list of the people who were to lead the Jamestown colony. And one of those people, lucky for him, was John Smith. Unsealing those documents and reading the instructions from back home in England saved John Smith's life. As soon as they decide where to land, they set to work. Many of the colonists begin building up Jamestown, planting crops, building shelters, etc. But on May 21st, 1607, just a week after the colonists begin occupying Jamestown, Captain Newport takes five colonists, one of which was John Smith, and 18 sailors with him on an expedition. They set out immediately 
trying to find a water route to the Pacific Ocean. Just have to love their optimism and their naivete. They've been there five days. He thinks he's going to get in a ship and sail over to China and come back. Never mind this massive, impassable continent in the way. We'll just run over, pick up a little jade and silk. Probably be home in time for dinner. So they sail off trying to find China. And in just the few days that that ship is gone, Jamestown has already been attacked by the Powhatan Indians. This was not an empty continent that they were moving on to. They were moving on to lands where native peoples hunted and fished and made their living. So the Powhatan attacked very quickly after the colonists landed. So when Captain Newport gets back with his 23 men, he learns about the Powhatan attack, but there's some optimistic news, and that is that the colonists were able to drive off all the attackers just with the cannon fire from their ships. And one thing that I forgot to mention that I should point out now before going on, there were three ships that sailed with Captain Newport from England to Jamestown. The large Susan Constant and Godspeed, and the much smaller Discovery. Captain Newport hangs around Jamestown for a while. He sees people planting crops. He sees shelters being built. Everything seems to be going okay. The Powhatan were driven off easily. So he leaves on June 22nd, takes the Susan Constant and the Godspeed back to England. He leaves that small ship, the Discovery, for the colonists. And as Captain Newport brings a report from the council in Jamestown to the Virginia Company, it's a glowing report. Everybody's written about how well things are going, how rich the earth is, how the crops are going to thrive and flourish. The colony itself is going to find all this gold, and it's just a matter of weeks or months until they find this water route to China. Of course, by the time Captain Newport had reached England and given this report, things had gone pretty badly at the colony. We can't blame him. He didn't know. But what was going on in Jamestown was like a horror movie in real life. Part of the problem was that everybody was out looking for gold. They weren't planting crops. They weren't reinforcing their shelters. They weren't reinforcing the defenses of Jamestown. They were out looking for gold. They were convinced they were going to find gold. And in fact, one of the saddest things about Jamestown is they thought they were finding gold. Ignoring their crops, ignoring their houses, loading the discovery with all these pretty shiny rocks. And it turns out to be fool's gold, iron pyrite. Kind of a perfect metaphor for the whole miserable experience. Because after Captain Newport leaves and gives this glowing report to the Virginia Company, which encourages more and more colonists to come to Jamestown, the ones who have already landed are already in desperate circumstances. Horrible circumstances. How bad was it? Within a year of landing, 66 of those original 104 colonists are dead. This is a horror movie in real life. You know where the people are getting picked off one by one, dying. You don't know who's going to die next. You don't know where the killer is going to strike. Over half of these people are dead in one year, and these were not unhealthy people when they left England. You can imagine the type of men, because they were all males at that point, you can imagine the type of men that wanted to go to the New World and make their fortune. Nobody was disembarking these ships in wheelchairs. Nobody was pushing an oxygen tank down the gangplank. Nobody was popping sublingual nitroglycerin. These were healthy, strong people, and they were dying in droves. So what went wrong? Well, the first mass casualties occur in August of 1607. Remember, they land and actually start settling Jamestown in May. By August, there's a mass die-off. The area is pretty much a marsh, a swampy mess. It's briny, it's contaminated with the remains of rotting fish, dead animals. And of course, these people dump their own excrement right there in the same water. And I don't know if they were too incompetent or too lazy to go dig wells somewhere else. So they're just drinking their own polluted, soiled water, spreading diseases throughout the colony. And even though the water was bad for humans, it was excellent for mosquitoes, a perfect breeding environment. People were getting eaten alive 
by these mosquitoes. You can imagine, without any DDT or DEET, there was nothing to stop these mosquitoes from just consuming these poor people. I wonder how much of your blood you can lose in a day to mosquito bites. And not only were the mosquitoes draining them, they were also spreading other diseases. So this combination of polluted filthy water and mosquito infestation led to pretty much everyone in the colony getting sick. Now get this, many times in the Jamestown colony in that August of 1607, there were only five people who weren't sick. They had to take care of the other sick people, they had to bury the dead. Everyone else is too exhausted, too wasted, too feverish and sick to do anything to help. Now what would that do to your winter food supply? Nobody's tending the crops. So now on top of disease, you have starvation. And people in the colony are dying off in massive numbers. That doesn't get any better when winter starts. The mosquitoes are gone, but then starvation begins killing more and more people. Now, to their great relief, Captain Newport comes back in January of 1608. And on his ship are not only new colonists, but enough provisions, theoretically, to get them all the way through until spring. So the starvation should have ended then. But let's face it, when you're cursed and doomed, you are cursed. Because one of the colonists accidentally starts a fire that levels all of the colony's living quarters. How'd you like to be that guy? The guy who started the fire that burned everybody's house down in the middle of the winter. During this entire time, the relationships with the local Native Americans had been complicated. Some of the groups of the Powhatan Indians were friendly. They would trade with them, sometimes even give them food when they saw them starving. But others would attack them and try to kill them and steal their stuff. Well, in this winter of 1608, they were already somewhat dependent on the Powhatan generosity to stay alive. But after this fire destroyed so many of their shelters, they were much more dependent. And many of the colonists had to trade very valuable items to the Powhatan Indians just to get food to survive. So there's a lot of things working against this colony succeeding. There's disease, there's Indian attacks, there's the fact that they couldn't tend and harvest their crops properly, there's the fire that destroys all of their shelters, so many things working against them. But here's a little piece of information that should reaffirm your faith in human greed, <laughs> in accord with the Virginia Company's objectives. Much of the colony's efforts in 1608 are devoted to searching for gold, even while everybody's freezing and starving to death, with the little energy and warmth they have left in their life. They go out searching for gold. And they end up exerting massive amounts of human energy, digging in all the banks of the rivers around the area. Captain Newport had brought back two goldsmiths in order to test the metal that they found to see if there was any gold in it. So they're spending all this time looking for gold. And this is a madness that seems to infect even the colony's leadership. One of the exceptions to this was John Smith. He was very critical of the time and energy they were wasting looking for gold when they didn't even have their own livelihood, their existence secure. One of the colonists described that time in a letter back home by saying, quote, There was no talk, no hope, no work, but to dig gold, refine gold, load gold. So talk about gold fever. These people would hunt gold until they died, until the whole colony was on the verge of collapse. Well, that's a lot of love for gold. Now one more note about that winter. John Smith was actually captured by Powhatan Indians during one fight at Jamestown. And he claims that his life was saved by Pocahontas putting her head over his head to keep her own father, Chief Powhatan, from cutting John Smith's head off. So of course the story there and in the Disney movie is that Pocahontas offers her own life to save the life of John Smith. Now that leads to some kind of weird romance, but that's kind of creepy because John Smith was 27 and Pocahontas would have been like 10 or 11 years old in 1607. And the other thing is we really don't know if that happened because John Smith was a good fighter, good leader, 
but he seems to have exaggerated or just outright fabricated a lot of things in his memoirs. So we don't know if it happened. He says it did. Maybe it did. But let's go back to events at the colony. After that August 1607 die-off, the colonists seem to start to get the idea that maybe they're not being led so competently. Maybe Edward Wingfield, their president, is an idiot. And so they replace him. They replace him with a man named John Ratcliffe. John Ratcliffe takes over as president of the Jamestown Company in 1607 September, and he presided through that entire long, hard winter. Man, what a brutal first winter that would have been. You've seen your friends and family members die. It gets so cold that the James River freezes over completely, 100% iced over. You're living in the burned-out shell of the housing that you'd built, so you're always cold, and there's just never enough food. You're under constant threat of attack by Powhatan Indians also. And all that gold that you've been working so hard for, when Captain Newport comes back with his goldsmiths, they find out it's just fool's gold. There's no gold. You've had no success in all the work you've put into finding this gold. No luck. And as bad as that first winter was, as many people as died during that first winter, and remember, 66 out of the original 104 people died in that first year, mostly during that fall and winter, and as bad as that was, that wasn't as bad as it was going to get. The starving time was still coming. That wasn't even the starving time. Things were going to get a whole lot worse. But right now, let's go back to the end of that horrible winter of 1607. The people who endured that winter are starting to plant crops. John Ratcliffe is still the president. He has this brilliant idea. I mean, get this guy. People are barely surviving. And his idea is to build this beautiful, elaborate capital structure. For him to live in. That ought to help a lot. So the settlers begin to suspect that Ratcliffe, just like Wingfield before him, was an idiot. And his time as president is cut pretty short. And within a year of his time as president, beginning, it ends. He's greedy, he's extravagant, he's also obsessed with gold. But let me say this, no matter how bad John Ratcliffe was, he didn't deserve what happened to him. He didn't deserve to go out the way he went out. Powhatan must have really hated Ratcliffe because he goes on what he thinks is going to be a trading mission with the Powhatan, but it's a trap. The Powhatan kill the people who go with him. They take John Ratcliffe, they tie him to a tree, and they start a fire. And as John Ratcliffe is bound before this fire, women from the tribe bring sharpened muscle shells and begin to peel large chunks of John Ratcliffe's skin off of his body and throw it into the fire. And he's forced to stand there watching his skin boiling and burning away in the fire. And when they finish this torture, they burn John Ratcliffe to death. Sometimes it's really hard to believe what humans are capable of. Anyway, after John Ratcliffe's tenure as president ended, the door was open for John Smith. John Smith takes over the colony as president in 1609. John Smith is a strong leader, and he has a lot of sense. He makes a very simple rule, quote, He that will not work shall not eat, except by sickness he be disabled, end quote. Now that doesn't sound so draconian. Of course, you've got to work if you're going to eat. But in reality, it was 100% necessary because what was happening was there were a few people tending to the crops, raising all the food, preparing it, while others went out pursuing their own interests, looking for gold, trying to get rich. Then they would come back to the colony and demand a full ration of food. John Smith said, nope, that's not going to happen anymore. You can go out, you can look for gold, you can hunt fish and play around, do everything you want to do. When you get back here, there's going to be no food for you. As a consequence of this, the winter of 1608 to 1609 was much better than the winter of 1607 to 1608. 
No settlers at all died during that winter when John Smith was president of the colony. That's not just impressive, that's miraculous. Meanwhile, back in England, while a lot of this is going on, the leaders of the Virginia Company enact an entirely new charter and an entirely new form of government. They want a governor instead of a president. And they handpick the governor of the Jamestown colony, and his name is Thomas Gates. Thomas Gates and several other ships begin to sail for the Jamestown colony in June of 1608. Now, you remember when I was talking about the Susan Constant, the Godspeed, and the Discovery, the original ships that left for Jamestown, left in the middle of winter, the end of December 1606. They didn't want to get caught in the Atlantic hurricane season. Well, Thomas Gates and nine ships and hundreds of new colonists and all these supplies sail out in June. They make it to the Bermuda Triangle and they're caught in a hurricane. Most of the ships made it through the hurricane, made it all the way to Jamestown. A couple of the ships, including the one that was carrying Governor Gates, were shipwrecked. This leads to another little bit of a conflict. So remember that John Smith had tried to foment a mutiny on the way out originally. And now that he was president of the colony, he kind of liked that role. He liked being a leader, and frankly, he was kind of good at it. So as these ships with hundreds of colonists come out and land in Jamestown, Thomas Gates is not with them. Thomas Gates is the chosen governor of the colony. But there are others below Gates who now see themselves as the leader of the colony, and they demand that John Smith step down. John Smith was having none of that. He didn't suffer fools lightly, and he wasn't about to hand power and control over to these people who didn't know what was going on in Jamestown. This was a huge problem anyway. The Virginia Company is shipping hundreds of new colonists to Jamestown, but they don't have the rations, the planning, logistical support. They don't know what they're doing. It's like the leaders of the Virginia Company are just feeding people into a meat grinder, just shoving them in and hoping some of them survive. As I said earlier, the winter of 1608 to 1609 is a very good one. With the leadership of John Smith, people are having to work. Nobody dies. And in the spring of 1609, things are looking up in Jamestown. People are actually working for their own survival now. Acres of land are being cleared. New dwellings are being built and improved. John Smith is trying to maintain healthy relationships with the Powhatan Indians, so things are looking up. And what makes it even better is these ships that came over from England had a huge amount of corn with them. It wasn't nearly enough to feed all the people they were sending, but it was still a massive amount of corn that added to their rations and supplies. But like I said, when you're cursed, you're cursed. And this was nothing if not a cursed venture. So in April of 1609, rats attacked this huge supply of corn. And along with that, dampness or mold gets into the corn, and most all of the corn is ruined. This was a critical part of their food supply. So what does John Smith do? Well, he commissions a group of people to head downriver, hunt, fish, and bring everything back to the colony. He figures if they can just supplement what they're growing with some game, shellfish, fish, things like that, they may be able to survive the winter. This group goes off, but they don't have much success at all. Shoot a few rabbits and gophers catch a few shellfish, maybe a few fish, but they come back and they're hungry. All these hunters are very hungry when they get back. They haven't even been able to catch enough food to feed themselves. So then they dig into the rations of the colony again. But Captain Smith was not afraid of being a little austere. So he had whatever colonists could sell everything they could to the Powhatan Indians in exchange for food. He was preparing for the winter. So again, you get the idea that John Smith is a competent leader. He's not afraid of making tough decisions, not afraid of enforcing them. People respected him. And he wasn't afraid of austerity. But unfortunately for him and for the colony, an accident happened that cut his tenure as president short. 
John Smith stayed in Jamestown for two and a half years, first as a colonist, then as a leader, and then as the president of the colony. But after that, he's paddling around in his canoe with a bag of gunpowder. Why? Well, that's just the kind of guy he was, paddling around in canoes with gunpowder. But the gunpowder goes off and burns him, and he's injured so badly that he has to leave Jamestown and go back to England. He never comes back to Jamestown. You might consider that a stroke of bad luck for John Smith, but frankly, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to him. Because not long after he left for England, by autumn of 1609, Chief Powhatan decided he had had quite enough of these English interlopers. He wanted them off of his land, out of his territory entirely. And the starving time began. I'm so hungry I could eat at Arby's. Oh my gosh. Now I've mentioned the Powhatan several times. The Powhatan was actually a confederacy of about 30 different tribes living along Virginia's coastal plain. The chief who we call Chief Powhatan was actually named Chief Wahunsunakok, and it was this Chief Wahunsunakok that everybody called Powhatan, who had actually united this confederacy of tribes loosely under his leadership. Around the time that the Jamestown colony was formed, there were probably about 12,000 Powhatan Indians in these 30 separate tribes living in the area. And as we said before, sometimes their relationships with the colonists were friendly and sometimes they were very adversarial. I've already mentioned the fact that they skinned John Ratcliffe alive. But make no mistake, there were atrocities and abominations on both sides. The colonists raided and stole from the Powhatan Indians as often as the Powhatan Indians raided and stole from the colonists. And the situation was bad enough by 1609 that Chief Wahunsinakok, Chief Powhatan, ordered attacks on any English colonists leaving Jamestown. So Jamestown colonists became a people under siege. They had to stay within the walls of their fort, and when they left, they were killed. Now, in previous winters, and even in the spring and summer, the only reason that anybody survived in Jamestown was because they traded with the Powhatan Indians, but now that was taken off the table. Powhatan forbade all of his people from trading with the Jamestown colonists. Of course, it's not like the colonists took all this lying down. They sent out their own war parties. They slaughtered entire villages full of Powhatan Indians. They took the living children and drowned them in the James River. This was a brutal, nasty, violent affair with atrocities on both sides. But it had the effect of isolating the colonists within Jamestown. And during that winter of 1609 to 1610, with no one to trade with, no way to safely hunt, with their food stores being depleted, the starving time had arrived. Archaeologists who have dug up the waste pits from Jamestown say that you can kind of follow a predictable pattern in the way that the Jamestown colonists' diet deteriorated. First thing they did was slaughter their cattle and their horses. Even animals that were working beasts were eaten. In the same level of these waste pits, they could find chicken and geese and ducks and other things that are totally normal for people to eat. But then, of course, they find the bones of dogs. And that's getting a little out there. There are some cultures that would have eaten dog and not thought much of it. Many Native American cultures wouldn't really have thought that was all that unusual. But for English settlers, not part of their normal diet. And it speaks to a gradually increasing level of desperation. Now next comes the bones of cats. It seems to me that you'd have to be pretty far gone, pretty desperate to eat a cat. I don't know any culture on the planet that looks at a house cat and thinks that it looks tasty. So the settlers are getting more and more desperate, more and more starved. Then they find rat bones in these pits. Now rats, you know, that is pretty far out there. But again, 
Even though most English people would consider rats disgusting vermin, there are examples of cultures who eat rats. One thing that I find interesting is that in these waste pits, there are no mouse bones. Why is that? Well, it's not because they were finicky eaters. When people eat mice, they actually pop the entire mouse into their mouth and swallow it whole or crunch it up and swallow it. So those bones don't go into the waste pits. Nobody wastes time picking meat off mouse bones. But you can bet they were eating every mouse they could get their hands on. Your odds would be better being a snake on a busy freeway than a mouse in Jamestown. And speaking of snakes, there actually were snake bones in these pits also. Whenever they could, I'm sure they would catch snakes and eat those too. But even at that, there wasn't nearly enough food to feed all these people. By this time, there were about 500 colonists living in Jamestown. Now, I want you to think, how many people are in your family? When you were growing up, what did you have? Two, three kids in the family? Imagine how much food it took to keep you alive every single day. How much food your family went through every single day. And imagine how much food it would take to keep 500 colonists alive. And there was no food. They were eating everything they could get their hands on, and they were starving to death by the dozens, by the tens, twenties, by the hundreds. And so they had to find more to eat. Now this next thing might be the litmus test for where you've just kind of jumped the shark. You've actually just completely lost it. And that's when your own shoe leather starts to look good to you. And that's what the people of Jamestown did. They boiled their belts, boiled their shoes, boiled up their saddles. Every part of it went into the pot and then people would eat this. Of course, rendered leather has almost no nutritional value, very few calories. Even though you think you're filling your belly up, you're feeling full. You're starving to death. It's around this time when even the leather itself is starting to run out that people start to accuse others of cannibalism. During this terrible winter, this starving time, after John Smith had left for England, the governor's name is George Percy. Now, we have at least five handwritten accounts of cannibalism being practiced at the Jamestown colony, and one of those comes from this Governor Percy. He writes, quote, A world of miseries ensued, insomuch that some to satisfy their hunger, have robbed the store for the which I caused them to be executed. Then having fed upon our horses and other beasts as long as they lasted, we were glad to make shift with the vermin as dogs, cats, rats, and mice. All was fish that came to the net to satisfy cruel hunger as to eat boots, shoes, or any other leather some could come by. And those being spent and devoured, some were enforced to search the woods and feed upon serpents and snakes, and to dig the earth for wild and unknown roots, where many of our men were cut off and slain by the salvages. Now they used to call savages, salvages. Anyway, going on, he writes, And now famine beginning to look ghastly and pale in every face, that nothing was spared to maintain life and to do those things which seem incredible— as to dig up dead corpses out of graves and to eat them. And some have licked up the blood which hath fallen from their weak fellows. End quote. This next account is related not only by Governor Percy, but by John Smith, who also heard of it. John Smith's account is the best. He writes, quote, One amongst the rest did kill his wife, powdered her, and had eaten part of her before it was known, for which he was executed as he well deserved. Now whether she was better roasted, boiled, or barbecued, I don't know. But of such a dish as powdered wife, I never heard of. Of course, John Smith has a little gallows humor. You might expect that. I guess he was a mercenary and a soldier. 
But his account is gruesome, and it's backed up by Governor Percy's own account. He talks about this same incident of a man killing his wife and eating her, and says that he had actually had to extract a confession from the man, quote, By the thumbs I hung him with weights at his feet a quarter of an hour before he would confess the same, end quote. Even though Percy doesn't report this, he had this man burned alive. And you get an idea for how the conditions at the colony were deteriorating, morale, discipline, all of it. Because burning a man alive was not an accepted punishment under English common law, so Percy was being brutal to send a message, because this was a very desperate bunch of people. Not only had they eaten all the animals and all their edible goods, not only had they dug corpses out of the ground and eaten them, now they were killing people to eat them. So Governor Percy had to send a strong message. So just how bad was the starving time? How badly were the conditions in this colony deteriorating? Well, I've already alluded to the fact that at the beginning of the winter of 1609-1610, there were 500 colonists living in Jamestown. By the end of that winter, four out of every five colonists were dead. That's an 80% fatality rate. Now, it's estimated that 97 people were still alive out of those 500. Over 400 people dead. Out of those 97 people, 60 were still living in Jamestown. 37, who were a little luckier, had commandeered a ship and they were sailing away from that nightmare. Let's face it, Jamestown had been a fuster cluck from the word go. It was time to get out. You'll remember I mentioned the fact that the assigned governor, Thomas Gates, had been shipwrecked on Bermuda. Well, on May 24, 1610, two ships, the Deliverance and the Patience, arrived in Jamestown. Somehow Thomas Gates and his crew had rebuilt the ships and had been able to sail successfully to Jamestown. But poor Thomas Gates. He thought he would arrive, the people would greet him with open arms, he would take over governorship of this thriving colony, maybe make a little money, get rich. But what he found was a post-apocalyptic nightmare. 60 starving, nearly catatonic colonists, the other 37 having fled for their lives. Thomas Gates described the survivors in Jamestown as near-skeletal apparitions. People who were barely human and barely alive at that. So Thomas Gates says, we've got to get out of here. I didn't bring enough provisions on these ships to keep anybody alive. There's nothing here. So Thomas Gates commands everybody to board the ships. And on June 7, 1610, he says, we are abandoning this colony. And even that was an act of desperation. They didn't have enough supplies to make a long sea voyage to make it all the way back to England. But they had no choice. So as they are sailing out of the Chesapeake Bay, they see three ships in the distance approaching them. As the ships get a little closer, they realize that they are also English ships. They find out that the three ships are commanded by a man named Thomas West. Thomas West is a member of the British nobility. His title is the Baron de la War, and the Baron de la War encounters these four small ships limping out of Chesapeake Bay, and he orders them to turn around and go back to Jamestown. He says, I have 150 new settlers, and these three ships are full of provisions. So what choice do Gates and the other people trying to flee Jamestown have? They can try to make this voyage all the way across the Atlantic with very few provisions. They're probably not going to make it. They'll all starve to death on the way. They'll all continue eating each other. And here's the Baron de la War, a member of the nobility, ordering them to turn around with ships full of provisions. 
So they all turn around, they go back to Jamestown, and this is when the starving time is officially over. All of the troubles of the colony aren't completely over. The war with the Powhatan continues, and in fact it continues until Pocahontas, the daughter of Chief Wahunsinakok, is converted to Christianity and marries a man named John Rolfe. And like many marriages in history, the marriage of John Rolfe and Pocahontas cements an alliance between these two warring factions, and that ends the war with the Powhatan. The story of the Jamestown colony doesn't end there either. For the longest time, archaeologists and historians in general kind of doubted the veracity of these reports of cannibalism. They seemed sensationalistic, and they had no physical evidence to back up these accusations of cannibalism. Well, that all changed in 2012. Archaeologists from Preservation, Virginia are digging at James Fort, and they're digging in these pits, these waste pits that we've been talking about. They're full of animal bones. And after digging a little bit deeper, they make a shocking discovery. Of course, you know what it is. It's a human skull. They find a human skull and a shin bone. And as they examine these bones a little closer, they realize that they have cut marks. The same kind of cut marks that you see when people are carving meat off of animal bones. So these archaeologists from Preservation, Virginia, realize that they have a very important find. They call the Smithsonian Institution, and Douglas Owsley, an archaeologist from the Smithsonian, comes out to examine these 400-year-old bones. Owsley's considered a top expert in the field. In fact, he helped with some elements of the Jeffrey Dahmer case. He's able to use 3D reconstructions, even though only three-fourths of the skull remains. He can reconstruct what this girl looked like. From the shin bone, they know she was about 14 years old. By analyzing the isotopes in her bones, this is fascinating. They can tell that she was probably wealthy. She was one of Jamestown's elite. She'd either just come over from England, or somehow she was getting pretty well fed right up until the day she died. And they know that because they examine her third molar and it has a high nitrogen content. That means she's been eating a lot of amino acids, a lot of protein. That would have been impossible for somebody living for a long time at the Jamestown colony. And not only that, they can compare the isotope content in this molar with groundwater supplies in southern England, and they realized that she was from southern England. From the isotopes of carbon in her bones, they can tell that she was eating a European diet, which means, of course, she hadn't been in Jamestown long before her death. So from just this analysis, they can tell it was a 14-year-old girl. You can see her face. They can tell that she was from southern England, that she was from a fairly wealthy family, and that she had just arrived in Jonestown. Now, they can also tell a lot about the people who ate her, and if you prefer not to hear this next part, just turn it off. But they can tell that it was probably two separate cannibals who consumed this young girl. And the reason they can tell that is because there's a different quality of cuts on the skull from those on the leg. The ones on the skull seem kind of tentative, almost nervous, weak, while those on the leg are very confident, deep gouges and scraping marks also on the skull. Again, I apologize, pretty graphic, but there are cleaver marks. Somebody was trying to chop their way into the skull, and again, they weren't very experienced, so they originally tried to go through the front of the skull, but that's too hard. You can't get through that very well with an ordinary cleaver. But then they turned to the back of the skull. You also see four chop marks, but there they cracked the skull and were able to access the brain. If there's any good news in all of this, it's that Dr. Owsley believes that she was dead before they did any of this. The marks are too regular and too precise and controlled to have been made on a moving victim. So in other words, Jane, which is what they call her, was dead prior to the time that somebody tried to chop her with a cleaver and enter her cranial vault. And that, of course, is consistent with Governor Percy's report that people were digging corpses out of the ground and eating them during the worst of the starving times. 
I will end with a quote from Dr. Owsley, who said, quote, The people who ate Jane weren't Jacobean Hannibals. They were starving settlers on the verge of death. So insane with hunger, they decided to break humanity's greatest taboo. End quote. And with that, I'll conclude the story of the cannibal colonists of Jamestown. This has been Know Thyself History Podcast. Thanks for listening. And thanks for sharing the podcast with other people. In fact, the best thing you can do for the podcast is share it with somebody else and encourage them to listen. But the next best thing you can do is go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen. Give us a five-star rating and a review. 